My name is Ed Goldberg, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Holly George Warren. That's a hyphenated last name. Welcome to All Classical, and uh, welcome to Portland. Well, thank you. It's so great being here in Portland. What a cool city. It is. It is nice, isn't it? I, I like it a lot, especially having moved here from the East Coast. I oh, like yeah. it a lot. The title of your book is Janice, Her Life in Music. It's about Janice Joplin, and it's published by Simon & Schuster. I learned a lot about Janice in this book, a lot of stuff I didn't know, because it, at least for part of her career, she created a persona for herself, and it changed from time to time. But the thing that it made me think of is that great Chris Christopherson line, a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction. Is that her? Yes, that is Janice. And oh, wow, I wish she could have sang that song. She, I think she would have covered more of Chris Christopherson's songs had she lived in addition to the great me and Bobby McGee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, God, that song did very well for her, didn't it? Yeah. Okay. Janice Joplin's childhood was not the miserable thing that she had us believe from time to time. Right. She was the queen of the soundbite and, you know, the old if it bleeds, it leads kind of thing. And she realized by focusing on the tough times that she did have later in her high school years, her junior and senior year were not fun for her. But the rest of her life growing up, I think, was, you know, it was pretty good in Port Arthur, Texas. uh, She had a very loving family. She had friends. She was involved in all kinds of activities, even the pep club. And, you know, I got to look at her scrapbook. So I saw all the things that she was involved in, got to interview some of her childhood friends. But her last two years of school, when she really found herself as a thinker and she was thinking outside the box, she, for example, stood up in social studies class in favor of desegregation. That kind of did not go over too well in this very segregated town and school. She also read On the Road by Jack Kerouac in 1957 when it came out. That completely turned her head around. She wanted to go on the road. And even more than that, what really got her on a different path was discovering the music of Lead Belly, and then a little bit later on, Bessie Smith. And she started seeking out these records. She became a big fan of the blues. And also she discovered this little bar scene over in Louisiana where she would go with a carload of boys and hear some great swamp pop music, R&B styled rock and roll. And, you know, throw back a few beers along with that. She started getting a bad reputation and she was bullied and made fun of and gossiped about her last couple of years in high school. She always had, I think it's fair to say, I mean, you, you mentioned this almost, you know, word for word in the book is that she always had this conflict in herself about wanting to be different and about wanting to belong at the same time. Yeah, she wanted that security of belonging And her mom had instilled in her those post-World War II, 1950s values of, you know, the home and the family and the white picket fence. And she definitely wanted that in her life. But with her career as a musician and also her outspokenness, not taking any guff and uh, traveling around all the time, that was not going to be too likely of a situation for her. Although she did give it a try a couple of times when she came back home after seeking her fortune earlier in the 60s, way before the whole Big Brother and the Holding Company thing started in 66, she went to San Francisco for the second time in 1963 and lived a pretty precarious life but was trying to make it as a blues singer in the coffeehouse circuit. Mm -hmm. That's another thing about her that I didn't know until I read your book is that I had just assumed 
Port Arthur, San Francisco. But she traveled around a lot. She went to New York. She went to Austin. She went to Chicago. She went to Los Angeles and San Francisco a few times. She was looking for some place where she could fit in. Yeah, and she was looking for the beats. She first hitchhiked to San Francisco when she was 18 years old in 1961. She had been living that summer in Los Angeles with her aunts. And then she moved out to Venice where there was a little few remnants of the beat lifestyle still in effect. So she tried that out for a while. And then she hitched all by herself from there to San Francisco, kind of nosed around a bit in North Beach and kind of checked out the scene, ran out of money and just had enough for a bus ticket back to Port Arthur. But (laughs) she would eventually return in 63 where she you know, put down as many roots as she possibly could at that point in her life when she was 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we were talking before the interview. I mentioned I had driven through Port Arthur, probably at the worst time of day. Dawn and dusk are probably the worst times of day to drive through there because the place is horrible. It's it's full of oil refineries and chemical plants, and there's this yellow glow coming from these obnoxious lights, these yellow uh, lights. Yeah, these flumes, you know, and coming fumes up. And fumes, yeah, and everything could, stinks, yeah, and yeah. everything, and I described it as a hellscape, and I, I said, oh, no wonder Janice couldn't wait to get out of this place, but it, it's, all, it's also more complicated than that. Yeah, it is. I mean, when she was growing up there, it was actually quite an affluent town. It had a beautiful downtown area with big department stores and fancy hotels and, and all that kind of thing. They, the oil companies, her dad worked at the Texas company, later known as Texaco. They would have these petroleum parades and they had a huge high school with lots of bells and whistles. They, they actually built a brand new one in time for her senior year because they had so much money in that town from the oil industry. But by the time you went there, it had, yes, sadly, it's been hit by some major hurricanes. The economy has really changed. So it's quite a different scene there. However, that being said, you can even read a passage in on the road from Kerouac where he's driving through nearby Beaumont, which was about 20 miles down the road or so, and also an oil town. And he's describing the Sabine River and the oil plumes coming the, coming from these refineries and everything. So, yeah, that was part of life. But you know how it is when you grow up at a place that has that kind of uh, smell to it or whatever? Yes. You just think everywhere is like that. I, I know growing up in North Carolina, my grandmother lived in a paper mill town. And we'd go there and it smelled like sulfur and this horrible industrial smell and my grandmother's like, what smell? I don't even notice it. You know? We know about that here in Oregon. Also. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. One thing you said that interested me, I even wrote it down, is about those Louisiana honky-tonks. This was the, the, the womb, the gestating port for people like Jerry Lee Lewis, for the Swamp Pop people. I guess we should define Swamp Pop. If you know the song Sea of Love by Phil Phillips, you know what Swamp Pop is. It was, a, it was actually a genre. I forget the name of the producer that used to, uh, his record company. Huey Moe. Huey Moe. Yes. A, he, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he was right out of Beaumont, which yeah. again, and yeah, it was also a hotbed of Cajun music, the great Jolie Blanc, Cajun song, kind of the, almost the anthem was originally sung right there in Port Arthur. There was great R&B music. You know, Ivory Joe Hunter was from Beaumont. And across the river and across the Sabine River, Janice and some guys would pile into a car and go over there and hear this music. There was a great singer named Jerry LaCroix 
or Lacroix, I'm never sure how to pronounce his name, but he was later known for singing with Edgar Winter. Edgar and Johnny Winter also grew up in the area. They were from Beaumont also, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. were a couple of musical prodigies. They were a few years younger than Janice, but they were all kind of on that scene. So that kind of music, I think she later on, after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company, did try to kind of assimilate a little bit into her own sound with some of the horn sections that she used in 1969 when she went solo and had a band later called the Cosmic Blues Band backing her up. She started singing in the coffee houses, the near ones and the far ones, the far ones being places like Houston and, and Austin. And she was really just getting her chops together. I'm not sure she had any vision of where this was going to go. But she began to love performing. Yeah, no, she definitely had vision. She wanted to make it. She had ambition. And again, that was not the image she tried to depict when she was with Big Brother and the Holding Company. Because in you know in the counterculture, it was not cool to be ambitious or want to be rich and famous and and to make it. You know, I mean, obviously everybody did want to make it. They wanted to sustain themselves with their music so that they can continue to play music for a living but no one really wanted to admit that they wanted to kind of climb the ladder of success that was considered very you know middle class bourgeois bougie yeah yeah, yeah right. exactly <laughs> it's funny because janice janice and i were born the same year uh, she was about five months older than i was four months older we went through a lot of the same things even though i was in new york and she was in, in port arthur texas that whole idea of rejecting everything that your parents gave you wrapped up in a nice bow and said, here, take it. This is what this is what you do here in this country, right? And you say, uh, maybe not. Yeah, 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 she was very cynical about those kind of values. But again, you know, deep down inside, I think she did kind of long for some of that, but she would continue to reject it. And she was totally countercultural when it comes to adhering to the beat philosophy, and she did have kind of a dark fatalism as well, which she actually got from her father, who was quite cynical. He was an atheist in Port Arthur, which was pretty unheard of in the 50s. He read history and philosophy. He loved classical music. He was not your typical Port Arthur dad. So I think having that influence also was very effective in Janice's own pursuit of a lifestyle that was quite different from what was expected of a young white girl in Port Arthur, Texas in the 1950s. Yeah, sure. So you think of Aretha Franklin and Bessie Smith and Lead Belly and all those people being influences on Janice, but you don't think of Seth, her father, as being that big. But intellectually and perhaps emotionally, he was a big influence. You have to describe the Saturday Night Swindle. Oh, okay. That was a philosophy that her dad... Seth Joplin had with a friend of his who, again, were not your typical oil working dads. And basically it was this idea that, yeah, you work hard all week and then you go out and have a great time on Saturday night and it makes everything else worthwhile and you're going to have a great time and all that. But in reality, it's not really it's all what it's all racked up to be. It's, you know, you're still going to have this holes of emptiness and maybe a hangover and sadness and Whenever you might be moving up the ladder, there's going to be things to knock you down. So life is not perfect. There is no ball of cherries, which, again, that kind of optimistic positivism after World War II, I think, was floated out there, this kind of myth. And he definitely did, did not buy into that. So when Janice started to realize that was when she was actually had developed a drug problem for the first time, methamphetamine, 
in San Francisco around 64, 65, and she actually had this conversation with her father when he kind of gave her his Saturday Night Swindle philosophy, and, and that really screwed her head up, and she realized that was the way life was. And what she did was she came up with the concept of the cosmic blues, and she actually wrote an amazing song called Cosmic Blues, which is on her first solo album that came out 50 years ago mm-hmm. this fall. Wow. She actually went to college. She went to college at, at Lamar, uh, and she was buying into the the whole American dream at that point. Uh, off and on. She, she was in and out of college, I think, about, well, four times, if you count. She briefly went also to the Port Arthur Business College and learned how to do key punching, key punching and stenography, <laughs> and her mom thought she was an excellent typist, and actually... When she went out to California that first time at age 18, she got a job doing key punch for the telephone company that summer. But, yeah, she started out wanting to pursue art. She loved painting. She was very inspired by Modigliani and, you know, quite talented. But at Lamar, right after high school, she found that, you know, it was a lot more fun to go out drinking and partying. And she didn't make it more than about a semester at Lamar the first time. Dropped out, did the business school thing, went to California, came back. This time she enrolled at University of Texas in Austin. Again, claiming she was going to be like Rauschenberg, another luminary from Port Arthur who had studied art at UT, I think back in the 40s, I think it was, maybe 30s. Anyway, so she actually learned how to sing. What That was her real education. And Austin was joining a little kind of bluegrass group, acoustic, called the Waller Creek Boys and performing on campus and then at a cool little dive called Threadgills, beer, like a beer joint, and finding out what it was like to have an audience that dug what you were doing. And that really got her going. And she pretty much spent most of her time performing, singing, and even, you know, there's some bootleg recordings of Janice around that time that I got to listen to. And she was doing everything from Rose Maddox to the Carter family to folk music, but also she introduced blues to these guys. So she was doing a lot of Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey and Lonnie Johnson, stuff like that. Uh, all these names. If you're a music freak and you like American music, most of these names mean something to you. Of course, this is a classical station, so we will be talking to people who may never heard of Lonnie Johnson, even though, among other things, he worked with Duke Ellington for a while as a guitarist. I'd like to remind people that I'm speaking with Holly George Warren. The title of her book is Janice, as in Janice Joplin, Her Life and Music. California was really where Janice Joplin became Janice Joplin. She bounced back and forth for a while between L.A. and San Francisco. Her living arrangements are not always the best from, from time to time. But she managed, I'm afraid, to, ha- to develop a, a bad relationship with drugs and alcohol. And she also managed to develop what for the time was an active sex life. She, she, you know, I don't make too much of this, and I don't want to have this kind of male idea of that uh, her being everybody was bad in those days mm-hmm. yeah and and, uh, and people janice were had, experimenting let's yes, put it that way yeah. that's, a, that's a good way to put it janice was very good at being bad yeah and she was also not averse to taking risks she did live life on the edge she got that 
definition from Kerouac about being beat and being out on the edge and living hand to mouth. And, and she did that. She kind of relished it in the beginning when she was young. And again, she was young. She was still evolving as a human being. Now, early on, she was sexually fluid. She liked men and women, you know, even in the early 60s. And uh, she was quite open about it. She had a female lover in Austin, and then she'd have a boyfriend. You know, she would... She wouldn't stick with any program. She would just be very sexually active with whoever struck her fancy. And again, this was part of some philosophies that she was getting from books she was reading. But also, she had a real lust for life, a real zest to experiment, to be close with people. And she she dug that. In 1963, she goes to San Francisco with a guy named Chet Helms. And anybody who was a rock fan in the 60s knows who Chet Helms was. He became one of the leading lights of producing music in San Francisco during the San Francisco Haight-Ashbury days. She wound up in North Beach and she, you know, at a place called Coffee and Confusion. And she was playing around and she was meeting people. She was meeting people that become the elite of California rock and roll and what we what we know of as the 60s, yes? Yeah, I mean, and all these guys, Jerry Garcia, Pigpen from The Grateful Dead, they were doing the same kind of thing Janice was. They were really into blues. They were into old-timey country music, bluegrass. She met Yorma, then going by the name Jerry Kalkinen, who actually backed her up on some gigs at clubs, little folk, you know, uh, hootenannies and things like that. And, of course, he would later be a founding member of Jefferson Airplane as on guitar and hot tuna. Of course, people know him for that. But He was also the son of the Finnish ambassador. Yes, <laughs> and, he, and he was he loved that period of Janice's career. He I interviewed him, and... He said, you know, of course he loved her in Big Brother and the Holding Company, but his favorite time of her singing was when he, she was doing those Bessie Smith songs and he was modeling his guitar playing after the great bluesman, the Reverend Gary Davis. So, you know, they really had like a melt, you know, mind meld as far as their musical influences and really enjoyed playing together in, back in the 63, 64. Well, one of the most destructive drugs in the 60s, and still, it still is, is methamphetamine. And Janice got into methamphetamine, got into heroin, but everybody I've ever known who became a heroin addict, and I've known, unfortunately, quite a few people, talk about it, using it as a, an anesthetic to dull the pain, to make life much better. I always wondered what being unconscious for a while, because that's pretty, pretty much what it is, you got to come out of it eventually. You got to what? What was Janice looking for? Janice, you know, again, she lived on the edge. She was into experimenting with different kinds of drugs. Horribly, even in the '60s, there was this whole kind of crazy notion that doing heroin would make you be more soulful. Or, you know, of course, she worshipped Billie Holiday, who mm -hmm. horribly was a junkie. Mm -hmm. Charlie Parker, John Coltrane, some of her bandmates, uh, James Gurley, the guitarist, he got into heroin. Later on, Sam Andrew did, the other guitarist. And they all kind of had this notion that it would make them, you know, again, more beatific, more soulful. And so I think that was the original idea. 
where Janice really got addicted to heroin was in 1969. You know, she was kind of chipping here and there a little bit earlier on and still drinking was really her drug of choice was alcohol at that point. But in 69, she left the comfort of Big Brother and the Holding Company. And that was like a family to her. She really got so much confidence from them and they loved each other. They bickered like siblings, but they also were very tight. She went out on her own, had to quickly put this band together. She really didn't have time to even, you know, kind of organically grow a new band. And because it was that whole idea in the 60s, like you got to follow up the hit, you got to follow up the hit. And they'd had a big hit with Peace of My Heart. So in 69, there was an awful backlash among many of the journalists and fans who had loved her when she was in Big Brother. They thought she was going showbiz and, you know, she was had a horn section behind her and, you know, she got there was all kinds of criticism and it was hard to be a band leader. She didn't have training. You know, Big Brother was a democracy. She was one of the dudes, you know, so now suddenly she was supposed to be in charge and in control of this band. And it was a mix of some real professional session guys. Some actually had played, you know, Louise Gasca had I think played with Count Basie, I think it was. So. Suddenly there was so much pressure, so much riding on her success that she found that heroin just took away all that anxiety. It took away all that fear. And so gradually, you know, doing it after concerts, et cetera, and, you know, she built up an addiction to it. And even in spite of all of her cynicism and the Saturday night swindle and uh, screw you attitude that people in San Francisco and, you know, young people in the United States had in those days, she was easily fooled by a man named Peter LeBlanc. You know, I just, if I ever meet this guy, I'm going to break his nose. Well, luckily, he's dead. Oh. <laughs> he was a horrible person, a total con artist, hustler, identity theft. I mean, this guy, I mean, you could do a movie about this guy. He was such a swindler, and he literally you know, tricked her into thinking that he was in love with her, that he wanted to marry her. And this was when she was at a very vulnerable period in 65, when she was an addict, you know, she and he were both addicted to methamphetamine. So you're not really thinking straight. But I think she didn't want to think straight. She basically, if the one good thing that came out of that horrible relationship was the idea that she could go back to Texas, get off drugs, clean up, get healthy, and then she would have her happily ever after with this guy. And clearly, you know, he was uh, deceiving her and the family. He was sponging money off the family. He, you know, had another wife and kid, you know, in Buffalo. He had a was living with a woman he claimed was his cousin, who was really his lover, just whatever. But the other good thing for me, the biographer that came out of it was that Janice, over the course of, I would say, about three or four months, wrote him up to like something like 80 letters. And he was such a cad. Of course, he later sold the letters. So fortunately for me, I got to read tons of them. They've been bought over the years by different um, fine books and manuscript collectors and it's auction houses, etc. So they were functioning for Janice, almost like a journal. She would write these very lengthy self-analytic letters to him, looking back at choices she made, describing her family, talking about her hopes, her fears. They were such a window into Janice Joplin's head that it was just amazing reading. And I'm so fortunate in that the family allowed me permission to quote from these letters in the book. So I think 
you can really see the real Janis Joplin in some of these letters. Now, she also wrote lots of letters to her family as well, which again, she was just an amazing letter writer. They're witty, they're funny. And so, you know, she goes into different styles of writing depending on who her audience is. So she'd write certain kinds of letters to her parents, certain kinds of this boyfriend, and then to some other friends, a dear friend of hers, Linda, she wrote letters to. Brother Needus. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to really see all these different facets of Janice's personality through these letters. At one time when she alienated her parents, she met Linda Gravenides, who was the wife of a man named Nick Gravenides, who was a big deal in the music industry and in those he, yeah, days. Yeah, and he's still around, thank still goodness. Around. Oh, yep. God, he might even be older than me. I think he's in his 80s now. Yeah, he's definitely older than me. At one point in, in her relationship with Linda Gravenides, she looked at her and said, I need a mother. Mm-hmm. And Linda was up to the job. Yeah, she... Janice was always trying to recreate the Joplin family through her other relationships. Linda became her wardrobe designer. She was her helpmate. She helped her run her apartment and her affairs when she was out on the road. And she loved to go out and have fun with Linda, too. She had a lot of girlfriends that were just, you know, fun-loving. They'd just go out and prowl the town. And again... Four Capricorn women? Yes. And, you know, hanging out with Art Crumb and these underground comics and just, you know, Janice was... Yeah, she was a pool shark. In fact, when she lived on the Lower East Side the summer of 64, the main way she made money was shooting pool on these bars on Lower East Side, you know, taking these dudes for some, you know, money on the on her pool playing and everything. And that part of her too, I think, was something that a lot of people don't realize, that she was a fun friend. She loved to go out and have a good time. Okay, we only have a few minutes left in this interview, and we need to talk about San Francisco, Bill Graham, the family dog, Chet Helms, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and the Monterey Pop Festival. I think you're going to have to make this a two-part show. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to get you back here then. Unless you want to, you want to do a phone or you want to, I mean, we could sure. happen. it could happen. I can talk about Janice till the cows come home. Yeah, apparently. And, and I want to hear it. Even though I've read the book, I want to hear it. Janice Joplin became Janice Joplin to most of the world through the Monterey Pop Festival film. Yes. Okay. Can you describe what was going on at the Monterey Pop Festival briefly and then tell us about that magic moment? in the Monterey Pop film? Well, even before the film came out, there was over 100 music journalists from all over the country and the UK that were attending Monterey Pop. Nobody had heard of Janis Joplin. In fact, she got no special billing. She was just a member of Big Brother and the Holding Company. So they were slotted to play on an early Saturday afternoon. Once they came out, people were gobsmacked, as they say. Famously, you can see Mama Cass's expression listening to Janice sing. They were not filmed, however. They did not trust the promoters and refused to give permission for the great D.A. Pennebaker, who was filming the concert, to make, you know, to film them. So they finally decided that if Janice would perform again the next day, if Big Brother would play at a better slot even on Sunday evening, that Pennebaker could film. And of course, yes, they ended up using combination of the two, a Big Brother song as kind of a theme song for the movie. They used Janice's face on the poster. And that a version of Ball and Chain that they did that day at Monterey Pop just blew people's minds. And to this day, it's still, when you see it on YouTube, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. What a performance. And the, the magic moment is after the performance... Mama Cass Elliot is sitting in the audience, and the camera is on her face, 
And she just goes, she's talking about being gobsmacked and mind blown. Yeah. She's just wide eyed and goes, wow. And here's a little secret is that that was actually filmed the previous day, Saturday, early afternoon, watching their first performance. But then he edited it in when they did the show that was actually filmed because since they were not allowed to be filmed on Saturday, he was just filming the audience. So he put those two together. So it's kind of cool. Okay. Now, as a fan of Janis Joplin, someone who actually saw her open the Fillmore East in New York. And yes, uh, didn't, didn't you know that? I, I did that, not yeah. know that. Yes, I am I so jealous. Uh, it, it was unbelievable. I was in the third row and every th- people who couldn't get in, which was most of New York, I said to them, she's amazing because you look at her and you say, she's not a classically beautiful woman. She's does not, when, if you walk past her on the street, you might say, oh, okay. But when she gets on stage and starts to sing, the power that she generates, both sexually and artistically, is stunning. And a little footnote, she drank a whole fifth of Southern Comfort in that two-hour show. You're giving me chills as you're talking. I would have given anything to have been in that audience. Yeah, she was able to tap into these very deep emotions and manifest them through her vocals. And I think people in her audience she wanted to connect with so deeply and she did and i think she wasn't just singing to them she was singing for them women in particular who saw her have told me that you know feelings of shame and disappointment and betrayal things that janice had suffered she was able to give voice to those feelings for people in the audience things that you wanted to tamp down and you didn't want people to know that you were feeling she was letting them out. It was almost like an exorcism or something. She also was a great performer thanks to seeing Otis Redding at the Fillmore in 1966. He was an incredibly, you know, just sensual performer and he could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. She watched him like a student watching, you know, Aristotle or something and just soaked that up. And she was able to use some of that same sexual energy in her own performances. And, you know, she would compare it to, can I say orgasm on this radio station? That's a a good word, yes. My favorite Charlie Parker quote is, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn. And I think Janis Joplin, if she didn't know that quote, she certainly lived it. She did say something very similar to that, something to the effect of, I don't just, you know, sing this way, I live this way. She thought art and life should be the same. Horribly... That kind of attitude shortened both Charlie Parker's life and Janice's life. It was a tragic accident that led to her death. I I don't think she wanted to die. In fact, she had been clean from heroin for about four or five months when she had, you know, a relapse while in the studio. Again, she was trying to cut back on her drinking, which was much worse than the voice, actually, than heroin is. But horribly, she got a very pure dose, kind of like the fentanyl of today. And China White. Yeah, China White. And had, you know, her tolerance was down and she was all by herself and we, we lost her. A couple of people I knew in the 60s who overdosed either on methamphetamine or heroin were taken down by stronger variety than they had been normally used. Use X amount. And suddenly this X amount is twice as powerful. And, and that's... That's really what took her down among so many others. As briefly as you can, 
there are people to this day who say that she should have stayed with Big Brother and not gotten all these great ideas about horn sections and about better musicians. Uh, she went with the Albert Grossman, the, the manager, who said, you got to fire the band. We need, we need better musicians. And on the surface, it seems, well, sure, you know, she's this great talent. She needs musicians. But I think she was happier and maybe even more creative with Big Brother than she was later on. Did you have an opinion about that? She was definitely happiest with Big Brother that period, even before they became famous, from the summer of 66 up until, you know, Monterey Pop. That period of her life, I think, was definitely her happiest. And I think she kept trying to recreate that kind of camaraderie with her fellow musicians that she had with Big Brother. But here's the deal. Janis Joplin was an artist. She was a musician. She could not stay with any one kind of music or musician for too long. She had too much, you know, visionary ambition that she kept wanting to try different sounds, different styles of music. So she couldn't have stayed satisfied with anybody. It was nothing against Big Brother and the Holding Company. They did what they did very well. Mm -hmm. Then she had the soul band backing her up, the R&B band. And by the end of her life, she had found these great musicians and Full Tilt Boogie Band who were playing with her, um, her final touring that she did the summer of 1970 and who were playing with her on her last album, Pearl, which was a great match. But chances are she would have moved on from them in a few year, years down the pike as well. I love that kind of rootsy, cosmic country sound that she was doing that you can hear in me and Bobby McGee. But I think she would have never stayed in one place. She was, you know, hey, look, look at Eric Clapton. Look at, you know, there are a lot of people that would stop doing one type of music and then move on to the next. I don't think they were held to task for so much as, say, Janice was for wanting to move on musically and do different things. But I think for her personal well-being and her, maybe her health and safety, perhaps, you know, if she'd stayed longer in Big Brother, but you know what, I guess we'll never know. We'll never know. And I remember a music writer telling me that Jimi Hendrix was trying to find new ways to express himself in his music with his guitar, the songs he was writing, and he'd, he'd play a, a, a song during a concert and somebody would yell out, Purple Haze! That's all they wanted was the jukebox. They wanted a human jukebox. And the same thing happened with Janice because when she started doing, when she went back to the Fillmore East with her new band, people were yelling out for, where's Big Brother, mm. you know, and stuff like that. And the critics were really raking her all over the coals for making that choice and doing a different kind of music. But you, you know, have to have a thick skin. And sadly, Janice, it really did hurt her very much. And I think that, again was one of the reasons that she wanted the numbing agent, mm -hmm. you know, heroin. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thanks so much. I would talk about Janice all day long if I could. <laughs> I get that, yes. Janice, Her Life in Music is the title of the book. It's published by Simon & Schuster. The author is Holly George Warren. Thanks so much. Come back again. I would love to. Thank you.